Welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks that we need to watch out for, and of course, those that we don't. The IMF has forecast that the global cost of the COVID-19 pandemic will rise beyond $12.5 trillion through 2024, fueled by vast gaps in vaccination rates, widening divergence between rich and poor, and disproportionate gender impacts. The true number of excess deaths is still unknown, but the World Health Organization estimates it to be just under 15 million in the pandemic's first 12 months. It is, of course, a staggering number. But we have yet to suffer many of the hidden costs of the pandemic, such as the impact on education missed, the toll taken on mental health, the eroding of trust in governments. All of these will affect future generations who will vote, earn and spend and create the new political and economic systems. So what has COVID-19 taught us about future pandemics? Is the new plague just around the corner? How can we build up global resilience to disease and other threats to global health? That's what we'll be trying to find out today. My name is Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guriev, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris, and Beata Yavorchik, Professor of Economics at Oxford University and the EBRD's Chief Economist. And they'll be assessing the potential, the fears and the risks of the future pandemics, and of course, the cost of the current one. Let's look at the context. We've been hearing over and over again how much COVID-19 pandemic has upended business as usual and turned our lives, economies, relationships upside down. It changed the way we interact, consume and live. It accelerated technology, the advance, of course, in technology. And we all benefited from the miracle of modern vaccines. Many Western countries were able to vaccinate at scale, but in some parts of Africa, Asia and the Middle East, for example, vaccination remains a challenge. The UK lifted its last requirements for mass testing in April. The EU dropped mask requirements for flying in May. But some cities in countries like China are again in lockdown with economic consequences, of course. Or in countries like Russia, the true COVID death toll will likely never be known. Is the pandemic truly over? We all know that no one is safe until we're all safe. That mantra, of course, has been repeated so often. What are the future pandemic fears that keep you awake at night? That's a good place to start. Let's start with that then. Beata. Yesterday, I was reading about monkeypox, a virus that's typically found in West and Central Africa, which does not spread easily among humans. Apparently, cases of monkeypox have now been reported in at least seven countries worldwide. And what's worrisome is that two of the cases found in the UK did not have any travel links to Africa, suggesting that these infections happen through community transmission. What keeps me awake at night is not just that another pandemic may happen, but rather that we have not learned from the COVID pandemic and that we will repeat the same mistakes. Yes, I was seeing those monkeypox stories as well. And there is definitely, by looks of it, community transit, transmission, but it is difficult to know exactly uh, you know, where that's going. But I agree with you, you know, it's strange, isn't it, to be in the midst still of one pandemic uh, and to be worrying about something else. Sergey. Yes, I'm also worried about the next pan- pandemic. Uh, calling uh, COVID uh, virus, uh, COVID disease as a, as a uh, uh, fortunate event uh, is impossible. Indeed, as you rightly said, uh, probably 20 million people have died by now. Um, and uh, there's also an economic, huge economic cost. 
But uh, in many ways, uh, COVID, uh, with COVID, we were fortunate because uh, it was uh, rather easy to detect and uh, vaccines were developed quickly. I think the vaccination technology and development of vaccines will accelerate, but uh, new virus may be more difficult to detect, could be more viral, sorry for this uh, pun. And uh, in that sense, we may be not as fortunate next time. And we'll definitely have uh, something like uh, this pandemic, you mentioned monkeypox, but in general, as um, uh, our interaction with nature expands and changes in character, we will have something like this again and again and again. And viruses which uh, used to be uh, non-human viruses will become human viruses in the future. I would just mention a movie, a Contagion. It's a 2011 movie, which actually almost exactly predicted the COVID events. Uh, again, it's a bet in China. Uh, where the virus emerged. And uh, interestingly, it also predicted how the pandemic would uh, roll out and how the governments would react and how people will react. I watched this uh, movie in April 2020. I thought it's an unrealistic movie because it predicts street riots. I thought, how come uh, this pandemic will result in looting and street riots? And then street riots also came. And in that sense, a lot of what we worry about is predictable. And I think we should get better prepared. And I fully agree with uh, both of you that unfortunately not, not all lessons have been learned, even though these lessons are in, in plain sight in front of us. Yeah, so I avoided that movie. So gay, I decided that wasn't a good moment to watch it at that point. Uh, let, let's go to those lessons that you were just referring to. So gay, I mean, there are economic and other lessons as you start to draw out, aren't there, from the pandemic? So I think, uh, I think one big lesson, and this is a positive lesson, uh, is that we can do a lot. Uh, before, before pandemic, people were worried about existential crisis of, for climate change. And they said, but we can't really tackle that. We don't have the money. We, can, we cannot mobilize resources. And then suddenly during the pandemic, many things which were thought to be impossible happened. Governments spent a lot of money uh, lockdowns were introduced, uh, and uh, some things that were unthinkable really happened in a positive way. Yes, uh, government debt increased a lot in developed countries and in developing countries as well. We are talking about increase of uh, on average 15% of GDP. Uh, that's a huge number. Um, but again, Europe, Europe suddenly found the capacity to issue common debt, what's now called next generation EU. That's uh, something that uh, was completely rolled out before the pandemic. And I think uh, uh, that is a great lesson that uh, existential challenge uh, focuses minds. We see that now in, during the war in Ukraine, when the West uh, also makes unprecedented steps and acts in a unified way. And in that sense, uh, this is a lesson of pandemic that has been learned uh, later on. But on the other side, I think the big lesson is well, we live in, a, in an environment where human interaction with nature may produce new problems. And we should be worried about this. We should be extremely watchful. And we should, we should think about this every day as, as we advance on nature. So I think both of these lessons, the warning of a potential new pandemic that may emerge quickly, and, uh, and we, should, we should react immediately because every lost week 
costs uh, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and on the other hand, the positive lesson is uh, we are much better prepared than we think as long as we are unified and resolute. And we haven't even touched on climate change and the impacts on pandemics yet, which I'm sure we will a little later on. Beata, what about the lessons uh, for you? Let me mention three additional lessons. First, trust in governments is crucial for effectiveness of anti-pandemic measures. As we have seen, people who had little trust in public institutions were less likely to get vaccinated and take precautionary measures. Second, populism is detrimental when it comes to fighting pandemics. In Central Europe, some governments did not strongly advocate vaccinations because they feared alienating the anti-vax parts of their electorate. And that had very detrimental effect on, on the region. And third, um, last but not least, international cooperation is hugely important when it comes to early reporting of outbreaks and vaccinating the world. And here we have not done well this time, but I hope we can do better next time around. Let's try and dissect a few of those things. You mentioned government there. And Sergey, obviously you teach young people. What about the relationship and how you think the pandemic influenced it, the relationship between say government and younger people? You know, because obviously there was a generational question in this pandemic as well. Yes, it was, it was initially a very big difference. And it was right away clear that this is a disease which kills older people first and foremost. And for younger people, it was not clear uh, it was not clear why they should uh, uh, why they should wear masks and stay at home, and of course uh, uh, that generational divide was very important. Overall, in uh, in most societies, uh, it quickly became clear after the first stage that even young people can uh, get sick and die. And so this thing, uh, this thing uh, has improved, but um, still it was an interesting um, a phenomenon of this generational divide when uh, older people um, uh, were much more at risk. And so uh, th th there was a, also a divide in the attitudes to the mask mandates, to vaccination mandates and so on. Um, uh, there was a moral issue to what extent the value of human life is, depends on age. Uh, that debate was, of course, very painful. In um, pre-pandemic times, uh, of course, governments would always make decisions based on what's called value of statistical life. Uh, when uh, you introduce safety measures, uh, you don't want to pay too much because you always face trade-offs whether you can spend a million pounds on this particular safety measure or another one. So you calculate probabilities how many lives you can save. And usually governments uh, use uh, what's called value of statistical lives, estimate of uh, how society values a, a, a given life. And that is always age adjusted. And uh, interestingly, during COVID times, most governments said, whatever it takes, uh, we no longer think in those terms. We just save everybody we can save. And, uh, and that was uh, uh, curing this generational uh, divide uh, to a great extent. So 
So I didn't I didn't see a big inequality in that respect. But of course, as we are going to talk about it a bit later, many other inequalities emerged. So I won't really talk about generational inequality, but I will talk about other inequalities which were very prominent during the pandemic. Yes, as an older person, by the way, the oldest person on this podcast, I don't harbour any animosity towards uh, you and Beata, Sergei. Uh, just, just on uh, you young people, on, on uh, inequalities, you know, you just mentioned that you know, there were other inequalities, though, weren't there? Big inequality gaps, uh, you know, one, one thinks of depending on, uh, you know, what sort of job you did, depending on where you sat in society, the pandemic really hit you in different ways. Uh, and that widens some some gaps. Do you think those are going to endure? You know, at the moment in in Europe, we've got uh, a war taking place, uh, which which may well, with a recession, bring further inequalities. Do, do you see the lasting impact of COVID inequality? Yes, um, uh, inequality inequality to a great extent is driven by education uh, in in many parts of the world, including especially in the United States where college degree is the great uh, predictor of your success in life. And uh, this is what was ag uh, aggravated during the COVID. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a college degree, you're more likely to have a job you can do from home, so, which keeps you safe. If you have a college degree, you're more likely to have savings. Uh, and so you can afford to not to work if you, if you don't want to or work uh, part-time. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, people without college, college degree they usually do manual work, which puts you in front of, of the virus. And uh, on top of that, uh, poorer people, of course, have uh, more difficulty uh, working from home because they have fewer square feet, fewer square meters. So all these inequalities were aggravated. But then if you're asking about the long uh, implications, it's of course, again, coming back to education. Uh, many people, uh, would be hit uh, uh, by uh, by COVID shocks, uh, not being able to continue their education. And if you're coming from a poorer family, for you studying online would be harder. So again, poorer households would have a much bigger education shock, which will have long-term implications for for their post-COVID uh, careers. So that is that is the most important uh, most important takeaway. And of course, we still don't know the long COVID. Uh, implications. Maybe people who uh, caught up, uh, who, who got, got infected uh, during the pandemic, maybe they will have longer term implications in terms of fatigue, uh, cognitive uh, ability. And that, of course, again, aggravating the inequalities as poorer people were more likely to be infected. Beata, on inequalities, of course, there was the gender impact during the pandemic, you know, which we saw. Do you think that will have a lasting legacy or was it transient? I think it will have a lasting legacy. So the crisis, the economic crisis caused by the pandemic um, has hit women particularly hard. This was the first recession since World War II, during which unemployment among women went up more than unemployment among men. And most attention has been paid um, to the impact on lower skilled women working in services industries. But the pandemic has also put professional women behind. Women who are fortunate enough to be able to work from home. And that's because as schools closed, most of the burden on homeschool, of homeschooling and childcare fell on the shoulders of women. 
Now, in many cases, that was a rational decision at the household level. Um, if the husband earned more money than the wife did, then his career was rightly prioritized. But there is a catch. The existence of gender wage gap and glass ceiling means um, that women often earn less than equally qualified men. So by putting women further behind and increasing the gap between men and women, the pandemic may have created a vicious cycle. Next time there is a shock, it will be a no-brainer that the mummy has to pick up the slack. No, I mean, it's definitely there. I think that's definitely the case. Let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. Our subject today is the Fearonomics of uh, Pandemics with Sergei Guriev and Beata Yavorchi. Beata, let, let's look at the role of the state now, because uh, it was a time of big state, wasn't it? Uh, the last couple of years, uh, when the state became the employer of last resort or insurer of last resort or everything of last resort in many, many countries playing massive uh, roles. What do you think uh, that has done to the public perception of the role of the state in the economy? I think that the pandemic has changed public perceptions of the role of the state in three important dimensions. First, um, the pandemic showed how indispensable the state is when it comes to dealing with major shocks to the economy. Um, I think it reinforced the lesson of the global financial crisis um, that markets by themselves will not produce efficient outcomes in all circumstances, and that we need the state to intervene in some cases. Um, second, the pandemic made the society more accepting of high levels of public debt. Pretty much every country is emerging from the pandemic more indebted than before, and there is surprisingly little outcry about it. And this changed perception of the debt has enabled what Sergey discussed earlier, this huge investment in combating climate change, for instance. Third, academic research shows uh, that people who experienced an epidemic in their youth that is during their formative years, which shape their opinions for the rest of their lives. Um, these people are more supportive of the state playing a greater role in firms and industry. In other words, the pandemic has made people more accepting of state-owned enterprises. And that's going to have big implications for growth because as we know, SOEs are less efficient and less innovative. Now, obviously, the other issue is it brought forward a huge amount of government spending. The state had to spend much more on healthcare, for example, in many, many countries. That's, uh, do you think, you know, clearly that's going to be important for future pandemics, but is it possible? Because, you know, budgets are under huge pressure anyway. They're going to be under big pressure with economic slowdowns and possibly recessions in some countries. They are going to be in some countries under increasing pressure because of the need for more defence spending uh, in light of uh, events in Ukraine and the need to, to uh, you know, it's the old guns and butter argument, isn't it? Uh, of economics. So how do, you, how do you think the case can be made still to, to make sure for future pandemics that advanced spending in healthcare continues to take place? It's very hard to make that case. I think it's a real concern that governments are not doing enough to increase resilience to, to future pandemics. And that's because governments face relentless pressures that force them to focus on current routine spending 
in the health area at the expense of investment into future resilience and investment that moves the technological frontier of public health. To a large extent, this anti-investment bias stems from politics. Uh, investments in resilience tend to pay back in the medium term, while lower current spending is visible immediately uh, in the form of longer wait times for treatments. Um, and therefore, politicians may be heavily discounting uh, the benefits of long-term investments. So what can we do to rebalance health spending? I think we need to separate budgeting and reporting for routine spending and for frontier spending. And note that this distinction is not as easy as capital versus current expenditure. If you think about buying new ambulances, this is capital expenditure in accounting sense, but these ambulances serve current needs and don't do much in terms of future resilience. Also, this distinction is not um, as easy as R&D expenditure versus other spending because digitalization of paperwork or use of software-based diagnosis um, may go a long way into making a healthcare system more resilient, but it's not classified as R&D spending. And Sergey, you know, how, how do you see this question of competing demands on budgets and, and obviously one demand being what you do to combat future, uh, future pandemics and the money you have to spend on healthcare in advance? It's a, it's a huge question. And indeed, uh, um, the, we, we started with the fears of future pandemics. And uh, I told you about this 2011 movie. And one of the conspiracy theories is that Bill Gates is behind the pandemics because Bill Gates publicly uh, talked about the risk of uh, future pandemic, not because Bill Gates is a, is a prophet uh, or a clairvoyant, uh, somebody who can predict the future, but because the signs were out there. It was very clear that a new pandemic is coming, but the, the governments didn't want to spend on this exactly like the governments didn't want to spend on defense, uh, despite the fact that uh, Russia has been an aggressive country for a while. And it took a real war to uh, make sure that Germany wakes up and says, we we'll probably need to do something else uh, regarding our budget priorities. So uh, unfortunately, in many ways, public opinion is uh, myopic. And uh, unfortunately, this discussion has to be had. And uh, I think podcast we are recording right now is one of the contributions to the public debate where people should remember that this pandemic was predictable and the future pandemic is predictable as well. And we need to think about that ahead of time and we need to invest in public health because otherwise the costs are going to be huge. We uh, remember how in the beginning of this pandemic, people were talking about how it's just a flu, how it's just like COVID-1. Remember the first, the SARS-1, the first epidemic of uh, COVID uh, was a global pandemic, but it cost less than 1000 lives. So it was, not, it was not clear from the day one how costly it's going to be. But by now, I think public understands that this is costly and we need to keep reminding uh, people that despite the war going on, despite the climate change, despite other things governments should spend money on, 
pandemic is extremely costly and we should invest in public health. Yes, I remember being in the audience of the BBC lecture that Bill Gates gave in London, actually, where he predicted uh, what was likely to happen on pandemics a long, long time ago. And of course, no one was really paying enough attention, as you say. I'm, uh, I'm, one, one, of, I'm one of the World Economic Forum's experts on their risk report. And actually, right now, I'm a member of a global uh, future council of, on uh, frontier risks. And pandemics has always been mentioned on those annual risk reports. Everybody knows that pandemic was coming and is coming now. And uh, we just need to reach out to the public and uh, talk about those issues. We already talked in previous podcasts about antimicrobial resistance, for example. This is yet another huge risk that many governments talk about. And the UK government uh, a few years ago uh, put together a task force and published a a report. And this is something, again, uh, the public should know about, should worry about. The fact that it's a a long-term issue doesn't mean it's not coming. We all are going to live longer than a couple of years from now. We are going to survive next election. We need to worry about what happens 10 years, uh, what happens 10 years from now. In a way, the complacency is quite staggering, isn't it? Um, Sergey, what about, as we're thinking about preventing future pandemics, what about the role of the private sector in all of this? What, what role can it play? I think uh, we just talked about the public sector and every textbook in economics will tell you that epidemics, pandemics, vaccinations are things where government should play a role. So uh, whenever economists are accused of being neoliberal, pro-market and so on, every economist is pro-market, but every economist knows that market failures exist. And uh, epidemics is exactly the example which is put in every textbook. This is where the government should play a role. However, this pandemic also showed the amazing contribution of the private sector. Uh, Remember that vaccines were developed by private companies very quickly. All the delays were actually caused uh, by testing uh, by government agencies, testing uh, them uh, rather slowly. I won't say it was wrong. I I think testing is important, but uh, it's amazing how quickly vaccines were developed. And I think uh, this ingenuity of the private sector, of competition that played a huge role in that as well, that should be supported. I think think it's it's, uh, something that should be praised. What what do you think for the private sector? Well, if I may jump in, I think we tend to forget that even in advanced economies, such as the US, the government had to step in because of the coordination problem, right? Scaling up production of vaccines requires um, not just inventing the vaccine, but also scaling up all stages of the supply chain. And what's often underappreciated is that vaccines require a wide variety of specialized inputs from expensive pieces of capital equipment like bioreactors and filtration pumps to single use bioreactor bags um, to syringes, needles that are needed to put vaccines into the arms of uh, people. And all of these inputs come from a wide range of suppliers. You know, there are often specialized companies that are needed for the final fill and finish step. Um, These companies add other ingredients to the vaccines. They put the correct dosage into containers that are then ready um, to be shipped. So it is a hugely complicated coordination problem that the private sector may, may not always be able to solve. Governments need to step in to guarantee purchases at a certain scale, 
so that producers at various stages of the supply chain have incentives to invest in increasing um, the size of their production. It's a very interesting question you raise there, Beata. And, and Sergey, you know, that's really about, uh, if we're to have resilience, global resilience, it's about coordination, not just at a national level, but also at an international level. You know, what we see at the moment with geopolitics is that actually you know, geopolitical fragmentation uh, and, and therefore one wonders in a future pandemic whether the world would be so focused on, on working uh, together in the same way. Yes, it's, it's, it's a great question. And the current war, Russia's war in Ukraine, is uh, also a reminder of how the previous fragmentation has long-term implications. We had vaccination inequity, inequality between rich and poorer countries, where the rich countries would vaccinate everybody while vaccination rates in low-income countries would remain in single digits. The global South has not forgotten that. And today, when the uh, uh, rich democracies are fighting Russia with sanctions, the global uh, South remains skeptical, thinking that this is not uh, our war. Uh, we are not going to support you in sanctions. We are going to uh, take advantage of the fact that Russia is desperate to sell its oil, so we'll buy this oil at a discount. Uh, because last time when uh, we called you for help uh, with vaccination, you didn't help us. So this, this, is, this is a big, big problem that emerged from this pandemic. Um, the test uh, for global cooperation, in some cases, did not what uh, was actually failed by the uh, global community, and uh, I think I think we should do better next time around. But uh, I won't I won't be too pessimistic because overall, uh, overall there was global cooperation, uh, there was uh, insufficient but still help with vaccinations to developing countries, and in that sense, in that sense, I, I won't I won't say it's uh, we should be too pessimistic, but. Uh, Overall, you're right. We saw fragmentation. Uh, we saw we saw blocks, vaccination blocks, if you like, and uh, and in that sense, uh, the implications of that are still felt today in the geopolitical crisis we have uh, uh, after Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Just to remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics. It's the podcast where we help you conquer your economic fears, hopefully. Uh, and you can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud and share your ideas with us on Twitter. Let's let's uh, focus on these future pandemics and where they might come from. Uh, Beata, you know, we heard earlier, didn't we, Sergei was mentioning our interaction with nature. Uh, there's climate change as well. I mean, there are plenty of sources potentially of uh, future pandemics, uh, antimicrobial uh, resistance, of course, you know, big issue. I mean, the, the worries are, are many. Well, antimicrobial resistance is a huge deal. And its effects are predictable, and yet little action is being taken. Um, it is estimated that worldwide, every year, 700,000 people die because of AMR. And this figure is predicted to increase to 10 million a year by 2050. Now, we talked about 15 million people dying during the first year of pandemic. So 10 billion dying from AMR annually, that's the scale that's somewhat comparable to, to what we saw during COVID. Now, majority of antibiotic usage takes place in animal production. Um, antibiotics are often used to compensate for unsanitary living conditions for the animals. And a study from 2001 found 
that 90%, that's nine zero percent of antibiotics sold in the US were for non-therapeutic uses in animals. And the reason why not enough is being done to combat AMR is because limiting antibiotic usage in animal production would increase the cost of production. So unsurprisingly, there's a lot of resistance to taking an action. And that's that's a, a big point, isn't it, Sergey? So what can policymakers do to deal with these issues to prevent a new pandemic? I suppose one thing we can do is interact differently with nature, uh, do something about climate change. I don't know. You know. What can we do? Of course, of course, the issue is awareness of the public. And um, I think uh, we should also... We should also disseminate uh, research on this pandemic. Uh, we talked about the importance of populism, lack of trust in government. Um, we saw indeed how people who watched uh, uh, populist TV channels, who uh, listened to populist politicians, would trust, would have lower trust in vaccinations and would actually have higher death rates. And uh, I think the public debate should happen uh, around those issues uh, where we would show with data that uh, vaccination works, that uh, you, you can actually save your life and those of your relatives by uh, following medical advice. And uh, it's very hard to restore trust in government, but this is uh, something that needs to be done, um, uh, taking lessons from the past pandemic. So for me, this dimension, the trust in government, trust in experts, trust in science. This is exactly what populists hate and fight, uh, saying that experts are part of the corrupt political elites. But uh, we need to we need somehow to restore restore this trust in, in scientific knowledge, showing with the data how during this pandemic uh, vaccination really has saved lives. And the other thing is, of course, social distancing, lockdowns. That has to be studied. And again, uh, public should learn the lessons from this pandemic. So next time it will be easier to introduce things that really work. Do you think though, Sergey, we've been left with a, a pandemic of other problems caused by the pandemic we've just had and potentially, of course, the pandemics to come? Well, uh, we still don't know how, how many problems we have because the, effect, the long-term effects of COVID are not, are not studied. Uh, the, big, uh, the big problem is that... Uh, uh, government debt, Beata mentioned that there was uh, quite a high tolerance for uh, increased government debt, but that is also because interest rates were low. Now, when inflation is coming up, governments, uh, central banks will raise interest rates and suddenly the debt will become a problem. So that is going to haunt government budgets for quite a while. And this is one, one big issue. Some people would say that uh, uh, the most tragic uh, result of the pandemic is that Vladimir Putin has spent two years in isolation and was badly informed, which eventually drove him into this great miscalculation of invading Ukraine. So that is one person long-term effect of the pandemic, which unfortunately is a enormous human tragedy that Ukrainian people, but also Russian people uh, are suffering uh, from this uh, isolation of one particular individual. Yes, the consequences uh, are not always foreseen, are they, uh, from from an event like a pandemic and you get things like that. Let's try to conclude. And, and Beata, so if you were to think about the conversation we've had and, and, and what you know, how ready do you feel we are to deal with the next pandemic, future pandemic? I think we know what to do, but we are not doing yet what should be done at the international front. 
right? We talked about uh, coordination needed in scaling up production of vaccines. Things get even more complex if various stages of the supply chain are located in different countries, because then firms have no incentive to scale up production because they are worried about possible export restrictions that would prevent them from reaping the benefits of their investment. So we need international agreement that next time borders will remain open. And second, investment in health system resilience by other countries boosts our own resilience. So if other countries are better at early detection, better at managing epidemics, it decreases the likelihood um, that the disease will spread across borders and will affect us. But of course, it's difficult for politicians who face short election cycles to invest in building this resilience. So um, we need international coordination. We need international monitoring and reporting so that voters in our country know that we are falling behind in building resilience and that they will put pressure on our elected officials to invest more. And if this happens in every country, the world will be ready for the next pandemic. Mm. Sergey, ready or not for future pandemics? I think uh, I think we are much much better prepared, especially uh, in in terms of what Beata has been talking about. I also I'm also um, very optimistic regarding the capacity to produce new vaccines. If you if you read what the leading pharmaceutical companies are talking about about uh, mRNA uh, uh, vaccines, they're quite uh, confident that they can quickly produce vaccines. Uh, handling whatever virus is uh, coming up, uh, which is which is great. There are actually major spillovers from the investment in this technology for other uh, diseases. And uh, if if you want a silver lining, uh, the this investment uh, may actually be good for uh, for our generation. Uh, and we should be worried about living too long, if anything, uh, uh, and living with uh, living. Uh, getting too too many Alzheimer's, if you like, and uh, and then uh, uh, getting our kids to be burdened with debt to pay for uh, taking care of us. So that is that is the problem that I think we are going to face if you are asking about long-term COVID implications. Uh, but overall, things related to resilience, production of masks or syringes, and um, uh, back backup capacity to produ- produce that uh, uh, storage of of uh, of personal protection equipment, uh, inventories of those. These things uh, now better understood. And uh, I think I think we'll stock up uh, stuff which will be used uh, quite quickly as well. Overall, once again, I would re-emphasize what Beata has said. Open borders actually help, at least in terms of supply chains. And uh, we also saw that even when uh, such a big country as China uh, uh, locks down, the world doesn't stop. Yes, it's a huge shock for many supply chains uh, when uh, when some some supply chains are broken. But we also see how countries rebuild those supply chains and continue functioning. And this is again once uh, uh, one one more uh, piece of evidence on on uh, ingenuity 
and the effectiveness of the competitive private sector. Okay, I'll try not to live too long to be a burden on my children or society. Uh, just uh, in terms of, you know, thinking about everything I've heard you, heard you say, you know, where are we? I, I sort of think that pandemics, you know, will come more often and the gaps between them are likely to be shorter as well, which, uh, you know, we haven't really, I think, thought about how to cope with that as you come out of one, you come into another. But my real worry, I guess, out of all of this, and having listened to the discussion today is it's easy to become complacent. You know, our memories are fresh still. We are still in a pandemic. It's not yet really endemic. Uh, and it's easy when memories are fresh to think you're ready and to be putting a focus on the next pandemic. But the, I guess as memories, uh, you know, wash further away from, from the high point of the pandemic, we'll probably become uh, less ready and less worried until the next one is suddenly upon us. And I, and I worry a bit about that. And that will affect policymakers as well, by the way, as well as us as individuals, that complacency that will set in with time if the interval uh, is long between uh, now and the next the next pandemic. Interesting discussion, though. Thank you for listening to Fearonomics. It's the podcast where, together with Beata and Sergey, we help you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. Thank you to them as well, and thank you to you for listening. Uh, review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Share your ideas with us on uh, Twitter, at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. See you next time. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye.